0: Well, we get to hit hear from the Lord again. We've heard His Word already as we've prayed using some scriptures. We've read the scriptures and now we, we spend time hearing directly from the Lord as we read His Word and we preach from His Word. I want to give just kind of a public thank you to our brother Chris for leading us last week in Psalm 92. It's a joy to be at a church where the preaching of the Word isn't dependent on a person on a specific pastor or man, but we believe that all of God's word is sufficient for all of God's people and that whenever it's opened up and proclaimed that it's useful and beneficial to us. So we praise God for the use and the gift of gifted brothers to to bring his word and I thank you all for your attention to the word. I'm nearing two years here as the pastor and people uh, ask pretty often, how are things? How's it going? I tell them, praise God, I mean, we've had bumps and bruises and challenges, uh, but praise God, is going well. And uh, one of the things I always point to is the fact that I'm grateful that the Lord brought me to a congregation that values and loves God's word. It would almost be unbearable to come to a congregation that doesn't want to hear the word preached, right? I've had predecessors that told me that their first Sundays, someone was was telling them, are the batteries in that clock at the back broken? And he said, no, why you say that? It was like, Because you preach for over 20 minutes and we ain't going for that, right? I think if I preach for 20 minutes, you all would not go for that. <laughs> and so that brings us to Psalm 93. You have your Bibles, you can turn there. This past week, my wife, my dear wife reminded me, it was only five verses in this song. And in that, I think what she was saying is this should be a brief sermon. <laughs> well, exactly let's read god's word together psalm 93 the lord reigns he is robed in majesty the lord is robed he has put on strength as his belt yes the world is established it shall never be moved your throne is established from of old You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. It's a short psalm, but it's an impactful one. And here's what I think is the main point of Psalm 93. The Lord rules over everything so we can rest in him. It's quite simple and matter of fact, but it's often the simple things that we tend to, to lose sight of or minimize. And so we need to be reminded through this psalm that the Lord rules over everything. And because of that, we can rest in Him. Now, as we study Psalm 93, I think we see the Lord's rule emphasized in three themes number one, confession. Number two, conflict. And number three, covenant. Number one, confession. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Number two, conflicts. We see that in verses 3 and 4. And number three, covenants. We see that in verse 5. And number one, confession. Now, often we think of confession in the negative sense. We admit some wrong. So we confess our sins, or someone confesses to a crime. That's one sense of confession, but there's another, more positive sense of confession. It's when you declare that something is true. So, for instance, our church's statement of faith is based on the New Hampshire Confession of 1853, confessing some truths about God. Well, here, that's what the psalmist is doing. He's confessing some truths about God. And what's the primary truth that he wants to confess? To declare, the Lord reigns. It's such an important truth that it's repeated over and over, starting in this psalm and stretching to Psalm 99. So we see it here in Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns Uh, turn with me to one page or maybe even just look over to the next page to psalm 96 in your bibles and and drop your eyes down to verse 10 say among the nations what oh yeah i did that soft the lord reigns psalm 97 verse 1 the lord reigns psalm 99 verse 1 the Lord reigns. The psalmist seems to all want it to be known that this Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, he reigns, he rules, and he rules as a king. Turn back to Psalm 93, and in verse 1, that idea is further elaborated on. The Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belts. That language of the Lord being robed, having majesty, is kingly language. You might think back to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, where we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uzziah ruled Israel for 52 years in Jerusalem. And during his reign, the nation prospered. And so when Uzziah died, there was reason for lamenting for sadness in Israel. But as Uzziah's body was lowered into the ground, The prophet Isaiah's eyes were lifted up to the heavens to see the Lord high and lifted up, robed in majesty. Yes, this earthly king has died, but God was still sitting upon his throne. Now, why does that matter to us? How does that tie into Psalm chapter 93? Well, remember where we are in the Psalms in books 3 and 4, the books that describe Israel's time in exile. Remember, we need to read the Psalms in context. They tell a story. So consider how book 3 ends. Turn back in your Bibles to to, to Psalm chapter 89, the end of book 3, and look near the end of that passage at verses 39 through 44. The psalmist says, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his crown, his throne to the ground. It describes the exile. Verse 39, it seems that that God has renounced his covenant and defiled the crown of the king of Israel. Verse 40, God has has breached Jerusalem's walls. So that verse 41 says enemies have come in and plunder them. Verse 42, God has exalted Judah's foes. And verse 44, made Judah's splendor to cease and cast its throne, its king, to the ground. As book four opens, that's the situation they're speaking into, a time of exile. But while Judah has been invaded, its people taken captive and its king dethroned, the psalmist in Psalm 93 responds not in despair, but with curious hope. Though the throne in Jerusalem has been vacated, he declares the Lord reigns. Though the king of Jerusalem has been cast down, his crown covered in dust, the psalmist declares the Lord is robed in majesty. Now, some might have a word here to describe the psalmist expressions, fantasy. I mean, clearly, he's created an alternate universe an alternate reality as sort of a coping mechanism to escape the world that really exists. But there's another word to describe the psalmist's views here, not fantasy, but faith. Faith. He believes that what he sees around him doesn't tell the full story. That though earthly kingdoms and earthly kings may have failed or fallen off, God has not. Though our status and our location may have changed, God is still who he is. King, And his location has not changed, has not shifted. He is still sitting on his throne. It's a message that Israel needed to be reminded of in exile. So much has changed, but so much has remained the same. God rules. It's a message we need to be reminded of too, isn't it? You know, the way the Bible describes our experience as Christians is the way it describes Israel's time in foreign lands, as exiles. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 is addressing groups of Christians scattered around in different places around the world, and he calls them exiles. Not literally because they've been forced into exile, But to denote that this world, wherever you are as a Christian, is not your home. Heaven is, and we are all journeying there. But we are not journeying alone or without direction. Though left in this world and living amidst its madness, we need to be reminded that the Lord reigns. And it's a constant reminder we need. Because so many things are tempted to rise up as competing rulers. I mean, just think about it as you start your day. You awake and the to-do list dominates your thoughts. You pick up your phone and the social media posts are buzz about the latest beef in evangelicalism. Did you read that blog post? What this pastor said about that one? The local news reports more gun violence, more robberies, more crime. A Sin seemingly controls our communities. There are real spiritual rulers that Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us are constantly against us. Our own passions and desires threaten to rule us. And other people's opinions oftentimes reign as kings leading us either to live to earn their approval or to live in such a way as not to lose their approval. But Psalm 93 is like a drop of visine into burning blurred eyes, tempted to to look out and see other things or people as really important, as really in control, or to look out at the world and see all the madness and conclude that nobody's in control we need corrected vision to see and declare that the Lord indeed reigns. He rules. He is totally in control. It's the confession we need to express before we pick up the phone, before we turn on the TV, before we speak to our spouses, before we pivot out of bed, before we leave the houses— Whatever I'm about to see or meet, it will not change or challenge this fundamental truth that the Lord reigns. He is robed, the psalmist says in verse 1, in majesty and strength. He doesn't need external adornments. His own inherent glory and might are his kingly wear. In his kingly realm, the area over which he rules is expansive. Uh, This God rules over the entire world. The psalmist looks to creation to confirm his claim of God's absolute rule. Yes, he says, the world is established. It shall never be moved. That phrase, the, the world shall not be moved, speaks of the order of things. As hectic as things are on earth, the world is not unstable, but rather fixed, settled. And not because it exists as its own entity, but because it exists of God, whose throne, the psalmist says in verse 2, is established, is settled. God's eternal existence, his everlasting existence as king on his throne, And the reality that he can never be removed has its fingerprints in the world that he's created which cannot be moved by any human or any institution without the Lord doing it. God is in control of it all. Again, this is instructive for us because we don't talk about the world this way, do we? And what do we say? the world is crazy. The world is chaotic. The world is changing. How can the psalmist say the world is established? It can't be moved. I mean, his people have seen their world change. They've gone from prospering in their own land to prisoners in another land. I think it reminds us that our own existence is but a small slice, or our own experience is but a small slice of existence. Though things may seem to be shifting dramatically, we need to look beyond our experiences to the world around us. I mean, think about the things that you just naturally rely on, that you just automatically expect to happen without fail, The sun to shine, the rain to fall, uh, flowers to blossom in the spring, and trees to lose their leaves in the fall. And Jeff Bezos just spent five and a half billion, with a B, dollars to go into space. Now, if old Jeff would have asked me, how should I use five and a half billion dollars I could have thought of a thing or two that he could do right here in Temple Hills. But that's his prerogative. But you know, the the only reason Jeff was willing to spend so much money to launch into space, because he knew that as he went out into the space, he was going to see some amazing things. And even more, he knew that the earth would be there for him to return. Now, here's the really important question. How did Bezos know those things? Because he, like all of us, intuitively recognizes that there's a set order to all the world, a fixed structure to it. And behind that order is an orderer, the God who rules all creation. You see, we all live, whether we openly acknowledge it or not, as if there's a ruler. Someone over us. How wicked, then, deadly, when we reject with our words or our deeds that that ruler is God. Does that describe you this morning? This whole idea of the Lord ruling, reigning is rubbish to you. You refuse him as your king. You know, that's the very epitome of what the Bible calls sin. Rebelling against God's rule, acting as if he's not over you. It's what Adam and Eve did when they sought to live life on their own apart from God's kingship. It's what we all do when we sin against God who made us to live under him. And the consequences of that rebellion against God's rule are deadly. I mean, think about if you rebel against the rule of gravity. You go up to a high building and just toss yourself down with any supports, uh, claiming gravity doesn't rule over me, okay, well, you will die. How much greater the consequence, the punishment for rebelling against the ruler who rules over the rule of gravity, who rules over everything, including you. Consequence is eternal death and torment in an eternal hell. And that's not an overreaction, that's the just penalty for rebelling against the eternal rule of the eternally good God. All of us have done it, sinned against God, and our only hope is that this eternal God rules for our eternal good. He is a king whose rule blesses his subjects. He sent his very son to die for our rebellion, for our sins, to suffer punishment in our place so that we could be saved. Jesus Christ came bringing God's heavenly kingdom on earth. He came and proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is here. But this great king... God in the flesh on earth did not destroy us for our rebellion against his reign, but delivered us from that destruction. This king laid down his life for us, but he picked it back up again, showing that his reign extended even over death, so that all of us now who turn from our rebellion and submit our lives to him in repentance and faith can be included in his eternal kingdom. We all now have far more reason than the psalmist to confess what he does here. On the other side of Christ, we've seen how great God's rule is, how extensive it is. He sent his son and his spirit to rule our hearts so that no matter what happens around us, we can declare loudly with full conviction that the Lord indeed reigns. Saints, make that your motto over the next few days, months, years, because it's true. And as part of our duties as church members is to remind one another of the truth, then we need to remind each other of this great truth that the Lord reigns, brother. The Lord reigns, sister. And when you hear that, when you're on the receiving end of that declaration, Don't reject it as somebody being overly spiritual, out of touch with your reality. Don't respond, yeah, I know, but. No, accept it as a kind gift from God, caring enough to put a roadblock in the way of your drive towards despair or doubt and to instead detour you to look up to him to who he is and what he's doing, and to look out at the world with theological lenses and to rightly confess, the Lord reigns. The psalmist expresses God's rule through that simple confession. But there's a second sense in which the psalmist shows us that God rules, and that's through conflict. Point number two, conflict. Now, you would think that the person who rightly confesses God's kingly rule over all the world would be rewarded. I mean, that's how it generally works. I say the right thing and I earn some sort of reward, whether that's a compliment from your parents or a grade from a correctly answered question on a test or payment from a correctly answered question on Jeopardy. Saying the right thing is usually met with a benefit on the other side. That's even how Christianity is often presented, isn't it? If you confess that Jesus is your Lord, if you repeat after me, asking Jesus into your heart, your life will change for the better, instantly. Your worries will go away. Your problems will dissipate. Your health and finances will instantly improve. And so we might expect, That coming off this grand declaration in verses 1 and 2 about the Lord's eternal reign, that in verse 3 we'd meet the psalmist praising God for sunny days and clear skies. Uh, No darkness or clouds in his life. Uh, The Lord is my ruler. But we're met with another reality. Another truth. That acknowledging the Lord's rule doesn't automatically remove problems. Acknowledging the Lord's rule doesn't automatically remove problems. Far from clear skies and smooth waters, the psalmist expresses in verse 3, the floods. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Now, we shouldn't imagine here that the psalmist has found himself suddenly sinking in the sea this is not a jonah like experience but it feels like it the psalms often use the language of waters floods in a figurative way to to represent trouble and so consider psalm chapter 69 verse 1 where david says save me O god for the waters have come up to my neck David wasn't talking about literal waters, but about the troubles and enemies that were increasing all around him. It was as if he was about to drown under their pressure. And elsewhere, this language of waters is used to describe the threat of the nations, of foreign enemies. Listen to Isaiah chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. Ah, the, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. It's the same sense here. These floods represent Israel's enemies. They'd attack them and carry them off and are now surrounding them, lifting up their voices, mocking this people once so strong and mighty, now reduced to slaves. More broadly, these floods speak of troubles more generally, powerfully coming upon God's people. I mean, just notice the language the psalmist uses here and the structure in which he presents it. There's not just waters, but, but floods. The floods are ongoing waters, threatening waters with no end in sight. Remember, a flood Wiped away the entire world in Noah's day. Think about the floods when the levees broke in New Orleans. Think even simply about when your basement floods after a heavy rain. And that rain just keeps pouring down, pouring down, pouring down. No matter how many buckets you take to scoop that water out, it keeps coming. It immediately puts into your heart a sense of fear, of terror. You know the damage or destruction it can bring. And the psalmist here, in three lines in verse 3, kind of adds to the intensity of that situation. He uses these three lines to kind of add to what's going on in Hebrew poetry. It's called step parallelism, right? With each verse adding to and deepening the sense of the previous line. The first line, the the floods have lifted up. The second line, the, the floods have lifted up their voice. The third line, so loud and prominent are the waters that the floods lift up their roaring. It's terrifying. I mean, who can control a roaring, raging flood of waters? And again, remember, this is not the experience of an unbeliever. This is the experience of one who knows and affirms God's reign and means to submit to it. We need to reflect on that for a minute, because sometimes I think we're shocked when troubles come our way, when we're met with problems. As if the fact that we have good theology or we go to a good church, that we make the right confession is supposed to be like some sort of vaccine against trials. That's just not the case, though, is it? And it's never promised to be that way. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we're commanded: do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. They're the normal experience of living life in a fallen world. The presence of troubles does not negate God's power, does not one bit counterclaims of his rule. Brother, God allows them to show how mighty he really is. What are the floods, troubles threatening you? What problems or enemies are rising up that you feel are about to overtake you? Is it a hostile boss or co-worker or family member even? Antagonistic about your faith? Is it the broader culture? that you sense is turning more against you and the basic beliefs of the Bible, whether it be concerning matters of gender or the dignity of every person, regardless of ethnicity? Is it the desires of your flesh warring against you, tempting you to sin? Your passions are seemingly uncontrollable. You can be honest about the floods pressing in on you. There's no reason to be quiet or to belittle their existence. But when they arise, when problems, terrors, dangers, temptations arise, does prayer arise as well? And notice here, in verse 3, that the psalmist voices the existence of dangers, of troubles, to God. The floods have lifted up Oh, Lord, you know, I think we're often too prone to talk to ourselves about our problems, replaying the number and severity of them in our minds. Or we talk on Twitter to strangers or on text chains to friends about our pressures or the issues that we're facing rather than talking to God. We need to learn the practice of the psalmist here, taking our problems to the Lord. That's what King Hezekiah did. You remember the story of Hezekiah? He received a letter from the great Assyrian king, Sennacherib, basically saying that he was going to come and ransack Judah and destroy it like he did all the other nations around them. And there was nothing that Hezekiah or any of his men or even his God could do about it. It was threatening, like the threatening of roaring floods. And what did Hezekiah do? Well, 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 14 says that Hezekiah took this letter with all these threats and spread it before the Lord. And he prayed, O Lord, see the words of Sennacherib, which he is sent to mock the living God. Hezekiah didn't try to figure out his own strategy for survival or escape. He didn't consult friends or counselors for help. No, he took his troubles and he laid them before the Lord. See, friends, prayer is often the litmus test for the kind of proclamation we see in verse 1. If you proclaim, confess, the Lord reigns, that he rules, the proof that you actually believe that can often be seen in where you turn to when troubles come. That person or thing, regardless of what your lips say, is actually the functional ruler of your life. What you really believe has the power to help you. Hezekiah... And the psalmist turned to God, and so should we, and for good reason, because only God has the power to defeat every foe. I mean, look at the psalmist express that here. Again, he notes the intensity of troubles of enemies. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. They are strong, just not strong enough. They meet their match in God in verse 4. The threefold strength of the floods is outmatched by the threefold expression of the strength of God. Verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. God is greater than any enemy can defeat any battle. He reigns over everything. The Puritan Matthew Henry comments that this verse is an immovable anchor cast into the storm, meant to settle our hearts against raging foes. He can't win against God. He's mightier than them all. And this is not just hyperbolic language or some idealistic but overconfident claim. A sort of like a, a well meaning but misinformed child who exclaims, My dad can beat anybody. Now I love my kids. <laughs> and I'd fight to protect them. But if Mike Tyson came, even an old Mike Tyson, <laughs> swinging, our best defense might be to just run. <laughs> no, this is a claim tied into God's person. I mean, he's God and tied into his actions. I I mean, what can many foes, even if they raise like raging waters, do? And God walks through the waters. Remember what he did at the Red Sea? Remember what he did at the Jordan River? Uh, He split the raging waters in two and marched his people through on dry land. Or (laughs) God walks on the waters. Remember what Jesus did when his disciples were fighting this storm out in the boat? The Lord Jesus trampled through the sea out to go rescue his people on the Sea of Galilee. The waters, which for so many represent uncontrollable forces, are controlled at a whim by God. They might lift up their voices, but God lifted up on high is mighty. He rules. And he shows his rule through conquering in battle. He takes the challenge of any enemy and he always wins. Isn't that what we see at the cross? Jesus taking on our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, death, and triumphing over them by his death and resurrection? God's record against his enemies is undefeated and it will remain that way. Pray that produces comfort and boldness in our hearts. Comforting us in knowing that no enemies that are up against us that are so strong that God can't handle them. Yes, worldviews and governments and people may attack Christianity, may threaten the church, but they cannot win the Lord will always prevail. Yes, the desires of the flesh might rise up. That old man, that old woman comes back raging hard sometimes, don't they? Lusting after sexual immorality. Loving to engage in gossip or criticism. But they don't ultimately rule you. The Lord is stronger than the strongest sexual desires. The Lord is greater than the greatest urge to share some juicy detail or to join in the parade of putting another image bearer down. Greater is he who is in you than anyone who's in the world. Hope that reality helps us to be bold in fighting sin, in fighting temptations, in withstanding criticisms and attacks. We need not walk around with a defeatist attitude nor with an attitude of fear, too overly concerned either about threats from inside or outside the church. The Lord reigns and is strong to fight for his own people and to defend and rescue us so we can rest in him and have hope. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, though, where's your hope? You see, we acknowledge that we all experience problems, troubles, live long enough and you realize that life just keeps coming. Death, troubles, worries, sickness, attacks, every kind of thing keeps coming at you nonstop. We can all be real about that, but we have an equal reality that God is greater and fights for us. Where can you turn to in challenges? in trials, in troubles. Friends, turn to the Lord today. You want to know more about what that looks like for your own life? Talk to someone around you after service. Find me at the door. We love to lead you to the Lord who who is mighty, not as your enemy, but who can be mighty as your greatest friend and protector. The Lord on high rules over all creation and in all conflicts, and we can trust in him. That leads us to our last point. We see the Lord's rule emphasized through covenants. Point number three, covenants. Now, we don't see the word covenant there in, in verse five. But I think that's what's being communicated when the psalmist talks about your decrees, your statues being very Trustworthy. It's a reference to God's word that he's given to his people. And he gave his word in relation to a covenant. He entered into a covenant with Israel in Exodus 19. And then he gave them his word to live by in Exodus 20. They were to be a people ruled by God through obedience to his word. But even as Israel broke the commands of God, God still held out his word to them, a word of promise that he would not break his covenant with them. He promised that even with all their sin, that they would be his people forever. He promised that he would raise up a ruler from among them who would rule forever and rescue them. Listen again to to Psalm 89, that that last book of book three. In verses 30 through 37, we, we read this. If the children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all have I sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. God said that he would not violate his covenant. Would not be false to his faithfulness to his people. Would not alter his word. And the psalmist here in Psalm chapter 93 verse 5 just echoes that. Your decrees are very trustworthy, Lord. Even in exile, we know that we are not totally cast off. Not totally done away with. Because you said that you would be faithful to us. And we trust you. We can't look around and see you changing our fates anytime soon. But we can listen to your word and trust your promises. Trust that you will remain devoted to your people as you said you would. And what's the appropriate response to a God so faithful, so devoted and committed to his people? Total devotion, total commitment to him. Holiness, the psalmist says, befits or is fitting to your house. The house of God in the old testament was the temple where the holy God's presence dwelt, and into which nothing unholy was to come. But his house now is his people, his church. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God has entered into a new covenant with us through Christ. And we, the church, as his new people, are to be holy to him. Devoted to him. How? by obeying his word that's why we pledge in our church covenant the first line in our church covenant that we will submit to the authority of the scriptures as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice it's why we spend hours going through five verses (laughs) reading and studying god's word we acknowledge that we are not free agents We can't live life apart from God, without God, on our own agendas. No, God sets the agenda for how we should live, and he does it by laying out his word. He has spoken to us. And so we speak to one another, calling each other to walk in the ways the Lord has commanded in his word, that we might remain part of his covenant community, obedient to our covenant-keeping God. The Lord reigns, yes, over all creation, yes, over all enemies and conflict, and yes, over us, his covenant people through his word. The Lord reigns and rules over everything. So we, in everything, should rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that you are on your throne. Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit in abundance this week, Lord, as we look to your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would live as if you rule and reign. Oh, Lord, strengthen our hearts. Give faith to to hearts that need to know you, Lord. Uh, Lord, give boldness for the rest of us, Lord. Comfort us by this truth that you rule and no one can knock you off your throne.